Hello, and welcome back to the Did You Do Your Homework podcast, where we make learning fun. This is episode 12, and I am one of your lovely co-hosts, Kaylee Scouten. And joining me today is... I was trying to think of a clever intro for myself, but I just don't have one this morning. So I'm Martha Sullivan, and today I am simply a young adult librarian and super nerd. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and I write uh, curriculum and have recently rediscovered the game Myst, which brings me back to Ooh. my childhood. Ooh. Oh, no. Not your childhood. Oh, no. <laughs> Run away. The only way that I could ever tolerably play Myst was with, like, a, a cheat guide <laughs> at my at my side. I found it on Steam for, like, $3 and was like, done. I don't, yes, we're buying this. I remember reading, trying to read a Myst book when I was in junior high and not having any idea what was going on. <laughs> that was a fun time. I didn't make it through the book. Well, good. So the book is doing a great job at mimicking what it feels like to play the game. Yeah, yes, that's, that's an accurate experience. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, let's go over our recent podcast, podca- pop culture credentials, and what the last media, regardless of guilty pleasure factor or anything like that, was that we recently consumed. Martha, do you want to start us off? Sure. So recently, um, I have been on, so I am a tattooed lady, and recently I have been on kind of a a tattoo in uh, culture and in media kick. So I have been mainlining a show called Bondi Ink Crew on Netflix. Um, If any of our listeners are familiar with the Miami Ink, LA Ink, New York Ink a suite of reality TV shows. This is very similar, only it takes place on Bondi Beach in Australia. Uh, it focuses on an Australian shop and the artists and clients who come in to get work done. Um, I I don't know. I like these shows. I like to watch people get tattoos. I like to hear about the tattoo stories. I couldn't really... Don't super care about like the obligatory relation... Or... Um, obligatory reality TV drama that happens uh, in between, but the work is good and the artists are quality and I've gotten to see some cool stuff. Very cool. And Pete, what was the last thing that you consumed? Uh, well, you might think that I would say missed having just brought it up, but that's actually not the case. Uh, instead, uh, yesterday I have been, and this morning I've been voraciously reading Embassy Town by China Mieville. Uh, Mieville is a British weird fiction writer, I think you would describe him as. Um, he's most famous for a series of, uh, sort of fantasy, fantastical, uh, books set in, and Martha, you just had this, Boss Log, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. Embassy Town is a sci-fi book, and it's also an exploration on language. Um. Ooh, cool. There is a, uh, it's a human outpost embassy in on a world where the aliens speak an entirely unique kind of language uh that requires sort of meaning and intent behind the words uh it's two different sounds simultaneously they have two noise making orifices uh so the only way humans have been able to communicate with them is by actually breeding twins on the same like it's sort of like a pacific rim where you've got the drift 
So you've got to get into the drift and then talk simultaneously. Um, but that's just sort of the fantastical sci-fi backdrop to then this book doing China Mievili things. Um, he's a phenomenal world builder, so I'm just absolutely engrossed in this world. Based on his other books I've read, I tend to not be terribly excited with his endings, and I'm very close to mm -hmm. the end, so I'm sort of bracing myself for potential disappointment. Um, but perhaps uh, this will be the one that bucks that trend. Very cool. Um, the last piece of media that I consumed was Real Genius, which is yes. A... <laughs> oh gosh, it is a 1985 movie. I should know that because I was thinking about it yesterday. Starring Val Kilmer. Um, oh wow, he must be baby Val Kilmer. He's a baby. Yes, I he is a baby. I think it's the second movie that he made after that one where he's the pop star, um, the baby pop star. Is it baby pop star? Hold on just a sec. Keep talking, Kaylee. Okay, so it stars Val Kilmer at, like, an elite science and engineering university working on a project for a professor with a new student named um, Mitch Taylor, who is played by Gabe Jarrett. It turns out that basically the professor is working with the government, but not just to like build super weapons, but not in... He's not being responsible about the money that the government has given him for funding this research, and he is investing into fixing up his home instead um, and throughout the movie, this becomes revealed to the main characters and they plot like the typical, like home alone style prank, I guess, to get back at this professor who stressed them out regarding this research project. Well, I, I just pulled up the, the picture of this for the poster and man, it looks like a super young Val Kilmer with some delightfully feathered hair yes yes so it's um imdb confirms this was his second the second movie he ever made after a movie called top secret which is i highly recommend he plays an american rock and roll singer who accidentally gets involved in a resistance plot uh to rescue a scientist in prison in east germany during world war ii oh that sounds amazing it's hysterical <laughs> and then just a few years later he went on for top gun and Willow. And Willow, right, yeah. I love Willow. <laughs> Man, the 80s were good for Val Kilmer. Yes. Well, should we jump into the, the meat of the I episode? I believe we should. So, today we are going on the hero's journey. Um, this episode is based primarily on Joseph Campbell's hero journey structure. Um, and what what that encompasses is basically three essential stages where we've got the departure, the initiation, and the return. Um, and this is seen in a lot of different media very similar ways. So we've kind of taken three different ones and sort of analyzed how that journey unfolds across different media. Um, three, three things that we're going to be talking about 
in this episode are um so admittedly the hero's tale is a very formulaic one it it pretty much always follows the same structure and what i would like to discuss is how does this aid the narrative and how does it hinder it so if it diverges if a tale diverges from this in any way in any sort of way is this considered to improve the story or to hurt it um and another topic i'd like to maybe see if we can get some meat on is are we cheapening the act of the return of the hero so this is sort of this big like thematic moment but are we overdoing it in media where it it we always expect it to happen um and are we disappointed when it doesn't happen or yeah that's what i got cool that that's a <laughs> that that second question i'm i'm really interested to get into because i was just having a conversation about it yesterday comparing rogue one and get out which are two different movies but both involving sort of the return of the hero or lack thereof that's all i'll say for now i'll probably write up a blog post about it but <laughs> yeah excited to get into that conversation again Kaylee, if it's okay with you, I'd like to add a question to our yes. discussion. Yes, um, please. So the, so the hero's journey is this, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head when Joseph Campbell wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, but it's a storytelling convention that's been around for a long time. Um, so I, I would like to spend a little bit of time talking about why that is. Like, why has the hero's journey become such an important factor in the way that we tell stories um how has it become uh this sort of monolithic uh storytelling framework that we use and just why is it something that we as a culture keep coming back to in terms of how we tell our stories jumping in and answering the question 1949 is when joseph campbell wrote hero with a thousand faces Okay, so okay. he wrote it. He wrote it in 1949, but this is a story structure that goes back to, I mean, basically goes back to Greek mythology. Even yeah, further Mesopotamia. <laughs> yeah, so this is a this is clearly a structure that resonates with us as a um, storytelling. Well, I guess I should say that res resonates with humanity because this is not limited to just um, American or Eurocentric storytelling. It is international it is multi-generational clearly it has resonance and uh you know staying power and so I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about why we three as people who are exposed to a lot of different stories and a lot of different media why we think that might be i mean campbell like wrote or developed the idea of the hero's journey his other name for it is the mono myth and it is the idea that all myths everywhere follow this basic pattern. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not just that it's it's coming to us Western culture through like Greek influences. It's if you go to Polynesia, um, they, their mythic tales follow a similar arc. If you go to the Navajo, their tales and mythologies follow the similar patterns. Um, and, and that's really what Campbell's trying to get at in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, where he sort of teases out and, and provides examples from across societies and times um, to sort of shore up his argument. 
But let's get into the homework before we jump into the, the nitty gritty of what it means for the hero to go on a journey and have many faces. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess I can start uh, if you want. Um, I was the only person who did not choose a movie for this one. I chose, in fact, what could be the opposite of a movie. Uh, I went with a chapter from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion on Baron and Luthien. Um, I chose this because there's a new book out uh, published by Christopher Tolkien, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, um, who's been shepherding the estate ever since his father died. Um, all about Baron and Luthien. Um, long story short, Baron is a man. Luthien is an elf. Um, they fall in love. Luthien's father does not approve of their love, so he assigns an impossible task to Baron, uh, which is to get one of the Simrols from the crown of Morgoth, uh, Sauron's boss uh, and the equivalent of the devil. Um, Luthien joins Baron on his quest. They are aided by a number of companions, including an elf king and a talking dog. Uh, they fight Sauron, they fight werewolves, they fight vampires, and eventually they succeed in uh, chopping off the Simril from the crown. Uh, however, they are um, uh, not entirely successful in that. Um, the uh, In doing so... Um, Morgoth wakes up, uh, they escape, uh, the Simril is eaten by a wolf, uh, eventually Baron, um, gets the, the Simril back, kills the wolf, but dies in the process. Luthien pines and mourns and goes to the halls of the dead and pleads for the god of death to let him out. Uh, he does, as long as Luthien becomes mortal, she does. Uh, and then they live their lives out as um, mortal uh, humans, um, eventually giving birth to the... Uh, they're like the great-grandparents of Elrond, basically. Um, so that's the story in a nutshell. You have a lot of moments of hero's journey here, um, descents into the underworld, impossible tasks, um, death and rebirth, um, and and returning to the world you once knew, but a changed person with a gift that will change, uh, you know, society. Um, knowing that it was the Silmarillion, which is not everybody's cup of tea, uh, and, and knowing also that I'm sure we all had Wikipedia open as we were reading this just <laughs> to know who the heck we're talking about, where we're talking about, why this person has three different names, uh, how do you even pronounce this word? Um, what did you guys think? Um, I found it a little impenetrable and I, I'm, I'm glad to, glad to hear that you also read this with the Wikipedia page open. <laughs> that made me feel a lot better. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Um, no, I thought it was interesting. I have, I took a crack at the Silmarillion, uh, back when I was in high school because, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out. The, the books were very much in vogue. I'd already read the books. I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be cool and read the Silmarillion. No, I got like 20 pages in and I was like, mm, not happening. So this was really my first, um, in my first serious, like, foray. attempt, I guess. Yeah, foray into, into reading a chapter. Uh, it was rough. Um, but I did, 
appreciate. Okay. So Tolkien is obviously a seminal fantasy author. He is also an author who is writing. Uh, when was he writing? Um, th- this was written before Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, he was yeah. writing between World War One and after World War Two. Um, the, the Silmarillion was never really completed, um, but he began it uh, in World War One, um, and was still working on it when he died. Yeah, to say gently that Tolkien had some issues with sexism and racism mm-hmm. is... Uh, so it was actually really cool to read this chapter where I thought that Luthien had just as much to do as Baron did. Um, and she, you know, is not going to sit at home and wait to see how things come out. She's she's going to go and, you know, help save the day. Uh, I, I thought it was cool that we get two little side-by-side um, journey stories between the two of them. And it's not just about... Baron going on this quest so that he can marry Luthien. It's it's also about what Luthien does uh, in uh, pursuit of what she wants as well. Yeah, they, yes. they both have their, their hero's journey arcs in the story. And I thought that was cool because it also reminded me a little bit of like um, the Orpheus myth, mm-hmm. except that except that you know Luthien isn't just in the land of the dead waiting to be rescued. She gets to, she gets to do cool stuff. She gets to fight werewolves too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and in a way she is the Orpheus. She's the one who goes to the land of the dead to bring back her her dead love. Which I think is cool. Like that. She's more the hero of the story than anything. Pete, had you read this before? I have. um, Like you, I tried to read the Silmarillion once in high school when I was homesick with a fever that's a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but I tried a few years later and got through it. Um, my suggestion with the Silmarillion for those who are interested is that the first two, it's divided up into four books. The first two books are, the first book is interesting. It's about the creation of the world. The second book is painfully boring because it's just a list of all the gods and all their names and all their attributes and stuff they do and what the elves call them, and what the dwarves call them, and it's mind-numbing. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. But then, and, and it's not just a list, it's like a, a list written as prose, so it's almost worse. Um, then the third, which is the bulk of the story, is the Quenta Silmaril, which is like the main story, um, of which Baron and Luthien is a chapter. Um, it was neat when I was rereading this, just this chapter, how much I did remember. Like, oh, Fingolfin, I remember his name, because it's silly. Uh, And then (laughs) how much also I was like, I have no idea what this is. Let me wiki that. Or like, I absolutely need a map um, to know what what you're talking about. Um, Because it has been years since I've read The Silmarillion. Um, Yeah. And I'll I'll also admit that I, I do like the language of it, but also that it's not like for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I know at one point Galadriel popped up and I'm like, oh, I know that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she's the only name that anyone would read it, would recognize when tied back to uh, Lord of the Rings. I guess her and Sauron would be the only two. Yeah. Which I I guess, I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, but I had no idea that Saruman had a boss or Sauron had a boss. Like I thought Sauron was the top of the food chain 
by by the time Lord of the Rings kicks in, he is. Um, okay. Because Morgoth so is like, yeah, like Morgoth is dealt with, like sent into the void or something at the end of the Silmarillion. Um, okay. So he's out of the picture. At which point Sauron sort of becomes the next top dog of bad guys. Um, but yeah, in, in this, he's just the first lieutenant. And also a vampire. Yes. <laughs> Which I was always surprised very... the va- vampires and werewolves. <laughs> yeah, that was a little... That was a little tonally dissonant for me, I guess. I don't know how much vampires and werewolves show up in high fantasy typically. <laughs> right. So it was a little bit like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, oh, Crossing it's an all I- the streams. <laughs> It's an island of werewolves in Lord of the Rings? That's not right. <laughs> Actually, the werewolves surprised me a little bit less than the vampires. Because you've got a whole lot of history of people turning into wolves in fairy tales. But not so much vampires? I don't know. Maybe I'm just demonstrating my ignorance. It was an interesting reading experience, Pete. I don't know that I will be picking up the full-length version <laughs> of this text anytime soon. <laughs> Um, so I think this is a good segue. Martha, would you like to tell us about your homework? Because I think that that follows. I picked the best one because it's true. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The best one made in the past 10 years. Let's go with that. Okay. So the homework I assigned for our episode is a film called The Book of Life, which came out in 2014. It is an animated movie directed, uh, written and directed by Jorge Gutierrez and produced by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it is a... Uh, it's an... It is the story of two men in love with the same woman to start with, and then uh, the two gods, the two Mexican gods of the underworld, uh, La Muerte and Shibalba place a bet on which man is going to end up uh, marrying the girl. Uh, You have Manolo, who is the guitar-playing bullfighter, and you have Joaquin, who is the unbeatable uh, soldier paragon defender of the town. Um, Long story short, due to some cheating on behalf of Shibalba, Uh, Manolo ends up dying because he thinks that Maria, the woman they're in love with, is dead. So he wants to go down and be with her in the land of the remembered. She is not dead. Uh, So it turns into his quest to get back to the land of the living uh, in order to uh, be with Maria. And also in the background, the town is being threatened by a gang of bandits. Uh, that Joaquin is basically the only person who can uh, save them from. And I don't know. There's a lot happening. It's all taking place on the Day of the Dead, so it's really vibrant and colorful and musical. Uh, I don't know. Am I being coherent? I feel like I'm not being coherent. I think you're being coherent. You're a lot more coherent than I am. (laughs) So basically, basically the Book of Life is about... uh, Manolo, who is played by Diego Luna, who uh, is sort of forced into a quest 
to come back from the underworld in order to be with Maria, who is voiced by Zoe Saldana, um, and make peace with his best friend, Joaquin, who is voiced by Channing Tatum. <laughs> um, I, As you just listed that off, uh, the voice acting in this movie is incredible. Uh, you have Ron Perlman playing Jabalba. Uh, you've got Ice Cube showing up. Uh, you do have ice cube. Which is like delightful. Heck yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's a it's a deep. Uh, Danny Trejo's in it. Uh, um, so Teach it, and Chong are in it. Oh no! Who are they? They're <laughs> the other two. Um, the other two musicians. Oh, oh, well, that's delightful. Um, <laughs> yeah, the other two street musicians. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I I think. It's a beautiful, it's well voice acted. I think that you're having a hard time describing the plot sort of speaks to my biggest problem with it, which was that it was a little too overstuffed. Um, the whole movie is built around an even larger framing device where this story is all being told to a group of school kids at a museum. And I thought that there was just one too many things going on in it. Um and on the one hand, like, the, the framing device is a good way to introduce, like, the complex world of, like, La Muerta and Jabolba and the Land of the Living Dead, or the Remembered Dead and the Forgotten Dead. Like, you need a way to introduce all that. But it, it was, it felt like a, a it was a, a very, it was a 130-minute movie. Or, uh, sorry, it, it was an hour and a half long, <laughs> hour and a half long movie. I was going to say it was not that long. <laughs> It was an hour and a half. Um, and something happened every 30 seconds um, because it was like sort of that rapid fire whiplash kids movie. Um, and it, it felt both really quick and also overstuffed. Um, that being said, I liked it. It was a fun kids movie. I loved that it was incredibly representational. Um, the, the gender politics were okay. Um, Zoe Saldana's character felt a little bit like a, um, a strong female character. Um, but yeah. Great pick for Hero's Journey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the whole, the whole, um, conceit of, like, two men fighting over, one woman is tired and I don't know. Love tri love triangles kind of suck. Um, it would have I been a very different one... movie, but I would have loved it if the solution, like if if they both lost the bet because she decides to marry neither of them. Um, yes. well, obviously, that wouldn't happen. But well, and I think kind of the point of at least from Zoe from uh, Maria's perspective is it's never really a love triangle. Like, I don't think that she ever really expresses interest in Joaquin, except as a, like, you're my friend, and now I'm going to go make eyes at Manolo for a while. Like, yeah, she is never really shown to have much romantic interest in Joaquin at all. Mm -hmm. I think what sort of saves it for me, too, is the fact that Joaquin and Manolo are still friends. They're really good friends, and the love triangle aspect of it doesn't taint that at all. Like they kind yeah, of take the it only as like time... a, as more of like they're in like this friendly, I guess, challenge. 
but at the end they're still friends like that that that's what's most important to them is their friendship yeah the only time joaquin really gets upset with manolo is when they think that maria is dead um Yeah, I and I, I can I, I I hear your criticism about how frenetic it is. I guess it didn't really bother me because the whole sort of Day of the Dead aesthetic is so colorful and opulent and things are like there's so much to see that it all kind of fit for me in terms of like the the hol- the, the celebration that they're kind of centering the story around it all felt very appropriate for that um, that aesthetic and that uh, holiday. And considering that this, like, it is a, a children's movie, it would, it fits perfectly for that. Like, I'm sure that, that kids would love this and love the sort of rapid-fire nature of it. Um, that every 15 seconds something happens, whether it's an action beat or a joke or, like, a camera pan to something happening over here or whatever. Um, so, like, in terms of what it is, it's very good. I I don't like using... I don't like using, quote-unquote, children's movie as... I, I, I'm not saying it necessarily... Right, this is more of a, it's not my style, rather than it's worse than an adult movie. It's just, it's geared at a different audience, so it's going to have a different, you know, metric. Or not metric, I mean, but it like, is, you know, style. It, it's geared towards children, but it's also, I mean, think about this, think about the music that's in the, the movie. Thank you, I, I loved all of that. <laughs> so <laughs> Lots good. of, I lots mean, of pop so songs. Uh, that's a soundtrack, that's a soundtrack pitched to adults. Yes. I mean, let's be fair. I think there was a Mumford and Sons song in there, like yes. <laughs> well, and um, remind me who wrote Creep? Oh, uh, Radiohead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, this—it's like it is a children's movie in that it is an animated movie, and those are typically pitched towards kids. But it's also clearly um, aiming for an adult audience. It, it felt to me like a lot of the, the really good, um, you know, Disney Pixar films where it's the classic, the whole family can enjoy it. Um, you know, unlike, I don't know, the Trolls movie or something, which I'm sure is a like... Hey, now! All right. Also, <laughs> I've never seen it. I'm, I'm pulling... You're judging? Yes, I'm, I'm judging very hard and, and pulling children's movies uh, out of thin air. But like... You know, the, fine. Alvin and the Chipmunks movies, I'm sure, are movies where the adults are not enjoying themselves as they are watching it, but the children are enjoying it. Um, whereas this is a movie where everyone can be enjoying it the entire time. And also, just sort of germane to our conversation, and correct me if you guys think that I'm incorrect, but I, I. Th- I think that this is the most traditional hero's journey type story that we uh, picked for this week. Like I would the agree. most. I would agree it, with it has. That. Sorry, we keep over talking each other. <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead. Um, I do feel like you are correct in that because I think 
Pete earlier mentioned the hero's formula, and as he was saying that, I'm like, this is Book of Life, this is Book of Life, this is Book of Life. Like, this fits it so perfectly. Like, especially the going to a place like the beyond, or in this case, the land of the remembered, and then coming back a changed person and having that impossible task. Because, I mean, the Silmarillion had the impossible task, but I don't think Shrek did. Yeah, I, I would agree that this... Baron and Luthien maps well to the hero's journey. This maps almost beat for beat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I threw the outline of it up in our show notes. Um, and basically, just real fast for our listeners, there are three essential stages that you need for it to be a hero's journey story. And then 17 substages, <laughs> which are basically <laughs> mix and match, you know, as your as your story needs them. You don't need every single one of those substages. Uh, but I do think Book of Life hits a lot of them. You know, down to like the two that I think of being as sort of um, the most superfluous are in the, you know, the second stage uh, after the the hero has crossed into the unknown territory to face special trials, uh, two of the substages are meeting with the goddess and atonement with the father, both of which we see, <laughs> uh, you know, basically word for word. I mean, I can say that and you think, oh, yeah, he gets to hang out with La, Mu La Muerte and talk to her about his problems. And then he and his father have a, a makeup scene in the land of the remembered. <laughs> so it's yeah, that, um, you know, the wording on those is all straight from Campbell. But I, I do think that Book of Life, it's almost like a checklist. You can you can run down Manolo's journey and see I haven't I haven't done a note for note comparison, so I couldn't tell you how many of these seventeen stages that that movie hits, but it's a lot of them. Yes, and I mean, like one of the last ones, Master of Two Worlds, is you know at, at the end of Book of Life, he you know what what is more that than sacrificing yourself for the living, you know? But then, spoilers, uh, surviving anyway. Um, that is sort of that, that. Well, and then exactly that. And then he gets to bring all of his ghost family up to help defeat the bandits. Mm -hmm. Which is such a great, such a great scene. Last little aside, uh, before we should probably move on, I loved his ghost, I don't know what, aunts maybe or something? Like the revolutionary twin sisters? Oh, the, yes, the cousins? Those are my cousins, favorite. Yeah. They're my favorite. It, it, it's a great movie pick, especially because it's so deeply Mexican. Not only Day of the Dead, but like, you know, the, the idea that you have... Yeah, like the the revolutionary uh, banditas um, mm -hmm. is is so perfect, and and also he's a bullfighter, <laughs> like yes, well he's a reluctant bullfighter, right? But yeah, that's one of the reasons that Guillermo del Toro wanted to produce it was because he feels very strongly about championing uh, Hispanic creators, and this movie was so, I mean, beginning to end, such a celebration of specifically Mexican Hispanic culture. Uh, you know, almost all of the voice actors are Hispanic. Um, I think Channing you know, Tatum director. and Zo Zoe Saldana are the only two who weren't. Ah, but Zoe Saldana is. Ooh. Yeah, she's half Latina. Did not know that. All right, well, Channing Tatum, um, what's going on, boy? <laughs> <laughs> 
and he gets to be the broiest of bros. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, should we move on to uh, Shrek? Sure. So for this week's homework, I picked a movie from 2000 called Shrek, which I'm sure nobody is familiar with. And by nobody, I mean everybody. This was actually <laughs> the first time I'd seen this movie, Kaylee. So no, I'm. Oh really? <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, it is based on a book written by William Stieg called Shrek with an exclamation point. Because it's spelled exactly the same, but there's an exclamation point. Um, And it is about an ogre named Shrek. I'm going to be saying Shrek every five minutes. Um, And he lives alone in his swamp, and he's very happy and content to live alone in his swamp. Like, he doesn't want to deal with anybody. But, unfortunately for him, that is not how things go because there is political unrest in the land and the leader of the nearby gosh what's it called like town but not town kingdom kingdom yes thank you i could not think of that word is he a duke is it a he's a lord lord yeah lord lord farquad for whatever reason just hates magical creatures and he wants to get them all out and you know imprison and banish as many as he can a lot of which take refuge in Shrek's swamp which gets on his nerves because hey if you want to live alone and you've got talking donkeys and all sorts of other things there's going to be an issue so he travels with the donkey Named Donkey, to Duloc, where he plans on meeting with the with Lord Farquaad to have him remove all the magical creatures so he can have his swamp back. To which Lord Farquaad agrees, on the condition that Shrek travels to a tower guarded by a dragon and returns the princess that is being held captive inside. So. <clears throat> Shrek agrees, and Shrek and Donkey go to... I don't think it has a name. They go to the tower, they rescue Fiona. They come back. Well, they, they start coming back. Um, it is revealed that Fiona has a secret that she turns into an ogre at sunset. But she vehemently wants to keep this from Shrek, because she does not think he would understand. Because she's the beautiful princess, and she's cursed to turn... You know, into an ogre. Um, as the story progresses, her and Shrek, they fall in love. Well, and his feelings are hurt when it when he comes across Shrek or not Shrek when it comes when he comes across Donkey and Fiona talking, and he assumes that it's about him. So he brings the army, or he brings Dula or uh, Lord Farquaad's army to pick up Fiona so that he can get his swamp back and she can be out of his hair but then it's revealed by a donkey that no they weren't talking about him blah 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 blah. and then they go and rescue her and it's a big hand clappy ending and they fall in love and kiss and it turns out that she's just going to be an ogre the rest of her life so I have a question for you guys I've been noodling over this for a while because I honestly can't tell in terms of the call to action phase of the hero's journey or call to adventure call to action in shrek is it when he leaves 
when he decides to go deal with Lord Farquaad? Or is it when Lord Farquaad sends him to rescue Fiona? Um, I, I think that it is the former when he uh, decides to leave his swamp. Um, because that's what sets him out on his path. Yeah. Um, because, like, the, the idea with the hero's journey is the hero is comfortable at home. Uh, so, like, Star Wars A New Hope is the canonical hero's journey as a film. And you have Luke Skywalker at home being all whiny about getting the power converters to Tashi Station and, like, wah, wah, wah. I don't want to leave. Um, I can bring the droids to Obi-Wan, but I'm not going to do anything else. And he needs a push to push him out of his comfort zone. Um, the death of his aunt and uncle. Uh, in Shrek, you have Shrek. He's uh, a misanthrope living in the swamp, uh, very happy living in the swamp, um, being a crotchety old ogre, and he needs a push to get him out of out of his comfort zone, and that's the dumping of all the magical creatures um, in his backyard, uh, which then sets him out on his journey, is how I would sort of scan that one. I disagree a little bit with your assessment of Star Wars, but that's not super germane to our topic at the moment. <laughs> um, Another blog post. Yeah, I just, I, I don't think that Luke's problem is his lack of desire for adventure. Um, it's the fact that he's being held back. Yes. Yeah. I, I have um, a lot of thoughts that I'm not going to get into. um but no i think i think you're right and like i ask because i think that both of those points could be seen as the call to adventure and i was just wondering how you guys read that particular um order of the story i guess yeah to to me this was um i i think that that moment the the reluctant the the refusal of the call uh is very common in a lot of movies um and and you know media even if the rest doesn't scan as closely that's a very common trope um the call to adventure the refusal of the call some necessary kick in the pants to get the hero out the door and on the road true but i we don't have I, i'm just saying that as a general <laughs> statement yeah know. no i i agree i agree the um the refusal of the call is easily identifiable um it's something that we only see in one of our homework pieces though hmm because i don't i don't think that manolo can be can be said to i mean he leaps into the land of the remembered because he thinks that that's where marie is right and baron is like heck yeah i'll go steal this thing for you so i can you know marry your daughter yeah yeah, the only real reluctant hero we have is Shrek, and even he doesn't really refuse the call because he's like, I will do whatever it takes to get you all out of my backyard. Yeah. Right, right. Which I did think was interesting because, as you said, Pete, I think that that's a really common form of the um, of the initial phases of the hero's journey that we tend to see, and it just wasn't really a big thing in the particular pieces that we chose. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I kind of jumped straight into into talking about Shrek and the framing of the hero's journey because I feel like we're all pretty familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Shrek might be a movie that suffers from its numerous sequels. Um, 
And also it just, it, it created a kind of movie that is now sort of omnipresent. Um, the, the big old DreamWorks dance number at the end of the movie. True. Yep. I, I, I also... Sorry? Sorry. Um, I love Shrek, but watching it again, I was like, oh, yeah, we've come a very long way <laughs> in animation style. Like, I didn't realize it, because I watched it a couple years ago, and I guess it didn't hit me, but, like, watching it again, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is starting to date itself. Well, and I know that I have, I've made it clear that I am a huge Book of Life fangirl, but especially compared to Book of Life, which has such amazing animation textures in it. Oh, man, like, every single scene of Book of Life is just gorgeous. Well, and one of the things that I love about that one is that all of the figures in the story that you're that is being told to you are all wooden toys. Mm -hmm. So all of their all of their joints are like wooden doll joints and the the texture of their skin is wood grain. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but it's one of the things that delights me about it. Which makes me slightly heartbroken that they didn't have more of a marketing presence because having a collection of like wooden figures in that style would just be like a dream come true. Well, Funko made figures of all of them. Oh, they did. Yeah, they oh, did yeah, legacy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they did legacy style uh, action figures. Okay. Uh, let me drag us back to the uh, topic at hand yep. of the hero's journey. <laughs> yeah, of course. Which is um, absolutely. Let Let me read this this passage to you, which is how Campbell very succinctly summarizes the hero's journey, um, and then like see whether Shrek, like, really matches it. Um, so a hero ventures ventures forth from the world. Uh, of common day, into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Um, obviously, that's going to take a lot of different, you know, iterations. Um, how close do we think Shrek sort of matches up with that? Obviously, he's already starting in a world of supernatural wonder. Um but here, you know, the, the, the uncommon world would be the princess tower with the dragon and the fire and the, you know, that yeah. whole thing. I think what's sort of fascinating is that he, I would say maybe like 80% of the way, but I don't think he comes back. I don't want to say, I don't think he comes back a hero. Um, hmm. He comes back. I do think. Sorry. Sorry. Like he comes back and he marries Fiona. And he gets what he wants, which is just his life alone in the swamp. He doesn't... Well, unless you take into account the sequels and whatnot, but we're not going to even touch those. He sort of comes back to his normal life, but with a wife. Well, he comes I back changed, say... right? He comes yes. back a little bit. He's more accepting of Donkey. <laughs> well, he's... And his girlfriend. I, was... <laughs> I, th- I think you're underselling... Um, the character growth that he goes through, Kaylee, because when he when he sets out to to get everyone out of his swamp, he's he's very isolationist. He's very uh, misanthropic. He and you know we see the fact that he falls in love with Fiona in and of itself. I think is indicative of how his journey changes him. I suppose, but 
<clears throat> I don't think I don't think that the the Shrek that we start the movie off of not that he's not capable of love that sounds sort of drastic um but he is not a character that would have at that point in his in his life he is not the character that would have fallen in love with a princess true and i guess i guess my point isn't necessarily that he doesn't undergrow any growth i guess it's just that he doesn't become ruler of the swamp like he doesn't I'm trying to put what my what I'm thinking into words that are understandable. Like he doesn't he doesn't have millions of riches. He doesn't come back as, you know, the king of the swamp. He kind of just he grows and he has a lot of he develops as a person. But when you read out the um the bestowing boon upon his fellow man, I guess is the point that I don't see happening. And so that, like, I, it sounds to me like what you're coming at it from is that his change is personal and so therefore doesn't have broader implications. Well, so if you're, if you're, if you go on the journey and you overcome things and you come back as a different person and you're willing and you have that bestowal of power or boon or whatever you want to refer to it as. He hits the first two. I don't know if he hits the last one because of the fact that he doesn't come to power. Like, he's not... Like, Manolo saves the entire town. He's, you know, the town victor. Or at least he greatly helps in that. He's viewed as a hero. Shrek comes back and gets what Question. he wants. Which is... Yes. So, by virtue of defeating the count or by virtue of defeating lord farquad he does give the fairy tale creatures back their freedom i suppose that's true and that's often how it's oftentimes in in the monomyth this last stage the return isn't necessarily that the returning person is now um you know has magic rings and you know becomes king it's more that they are um that they're freeing their townspeople from whatever bondage they were in before, whether that is physical or simply emotional. Um, being able to love, love is often the boon. That is what is brought back, um, whether it's a personal thing or a universal thing. Um, the freedom from the fear of death, the freedom to live, um, freedom from Lord Farquaad, these would all sort of fall into that category. I think we should move on to some of your more specific questions at this juncture, Kaylee. I think so, too. So do you think, do you guys think that the formulaic hero's tale aids or hurts a narrative? I actually found an article. I would have, I would have sent it to you guys uh, in advance, except that I found it maybe 20 minutes before we started recording today. <laughs> nice. Um, a, about the importance of the hero's journey in terms of being like in terms of the writer's perspective, like the, the perspective from the person telling the story. And I think that this helps answer your question, Kelly. I think one of the reasons, and it also kind of um, dovetails with the question that I asked. Um, and I think the answer is what makes the hero's journey so powerful and why I don't think that it um, weakens a story to kind of stick to this framework is because 
even taken on like this sort of mythological level, most of the phases in it are very relatable to things that real people experience over the course of their life. They're just sort of taken in a more fantastic direction to make for a good story. But there's still there's still beats and events and things that we have all seen and that we all go through. So it has a very resonant uh, quality to it um, because they are they are stories that we can still identify with, even though none of us are actually going to be Jedi. <laughs> but we can dream. You. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to make that one personal. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I think that this has a lot of, I think the hero's journey has a lot of strength in in taking things that we can um, identify with and making them uh, sort of fantastical for, you know, for the, the entertainment um, aspect of telling a story. If you buy into the notion that myths and storytelling um, even in the modern era, is at some point designed not only to entertain, but also to, um, you know, impart wisdom in some way, maybe uh, to try to teach people um, how to act right, maybe to explain why something is happening. Um, and, and that all sounds very moralizing, but oftentimes even, even stories like Book of Life or Shrek deal with the idea of, like, you know... Um, family and love and, and how, how we should be acting and all that. Um, the, the hero's journey very much maps to that and gives people a good roadmap, I think, for, for Martha, like you were saying, um, you know, living, living your own life. Um, as we sort of talked about earlier, this has gone, like, Campbell created this monomythic structure by comparing myths going back 4,000, 5,000 years since, uh, you know, written records exist. Um, so clearly, whether it helps or hinders a narrative, it's something that we've been using and following since we, you know, humanity has been doing it since we can, like, know. Um, so there's got to be something right going on. On the other hand, you could say, like, it, it, isn't it useful to, to break from it since now we know the formula? Um, yeah. You know, it, like, is it seeing as everyone in the 60s and 70s read Hero with a Thousand Faces and then use that as a template, is it being an overused template? And, and especially when it's being done so um, intentionally rather than intuitively. Yeah. Oh. I don't know how I feel about your your use of contrasting intention versus intuition. Um, I thought I mean, that obviously... might be the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I, I think that there's there's something to the idea that you know no matter how you shape it, most stories that feature any kind of character growth are going to fall into this structure, and that's not a bad thing. It's just sort of like this is a really nice roadmap for how people, especially heroic people or people that become heroic, um, you know, the, it, it, it's a roadmap for the journey that they go on and it's, it's universal for a reason. I mean, it's, it's not just easy. It's like, this is, this is the journey that someone goes on. 
um, I think you would be hard pressed to find any journey uh, or any story about a journey that didn't in some way follow this structure just because that's kind of how it goes. It, it would be painfully boring if a character yeah. did not undergo any sort of character growth or go through any sort of trials or tribulations. Um, or if- like encountered trials i mean that's such a and that's also such a a broad thing like that can mean anything and i think that we've seen a lot of really inventive uh plot devices or um story beats uh that kind of that interpret you know particularly the the trials the undergoing trials portion uh can be mapped to almost anything um without losing uh, inventiveness or creativity um, or originality, I guess. Yeah. But like, there's a, there's a reason that this is the structure of stories that have been told for thousands of years. It's, it's like, this is, I don't want to say that this is it, but it, it's kind of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that is basically what Campbell's argument is. Like, I, you know. He cracked the code. This is it. Um, yeah, yeah. I would venture to say that a majority of stories um, that involve a character going on a journey of some kind, I would venture to guess that most of the people who create those stories aren't sitting down and going, "All right, now I'm going to tell my version of the mono myth." It's like, no, yeah. it's just what happens. And I don't think I'm underselling authors by saying that. I don't think it makes them lazy or unoriginal. It's like, that's just, it's just what happened. Right. Like if, if you don't, if you wrote a story that doesn't map to these beats, and, and I don't mean that in a sense of actively mapping. I mean, like if you, if you've never heard of this before and then you wrote a story and then you were like, oh, look, it matches all these beats. Uh, if you wrote a story like that that didn't match any of the beats, I think it would be painfully dull and nothing would happen. Or it would be intentionally a story about someone that does not undergo character growth, because I think those exist too. They're just not really the stories that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that it would be the gray. <laughs> was that the, the movie where in theory Liam Neeson punches wolves but in actuality he doesn't punch wolves he does not punch any wolves how dare they sell me a movie on the idea of Liam Neeson punching wolves and then not show him punching any wolves I'm still mad about that <laughs> but like survival movies are a good example of that um, if well actually they are a hero's journey I was going to say, they undergo trials, they undergo, they come back changed. They come back changed, changed. yeah. (laughs) Frequently they come back changed. They just skip a lot of the more, like, magical stages. Although the wilderness is often kind of featured as a, you know, not really... um, A force to be reckoned with? Yeah, like a a force unto itself. Yeah. Like the wilds, going into the wilds. Right. Yeah, so even even survival stories map to this. <laughs> Do we want to get on to the idea of, of cheapening the act of return? Or we yes. sort of... Okay. Yes, I, yeah, I would love mean? to... What do you mean by that, Kaylee? So if we come to expect 
that the hero will return. That, you know, Manolo will come back from the land of the forgotten. Does it make the fact that he so readily jumped into this scary, unknown place less impactful? I don't think so, particularly in the example of Manolo, because Manolo has no expectation of coming back when he does that. Like he thinks he thinks he's dying to be with Maria. He he doesn't think that he has no expectation of returning at all. In Baron and Luthien, both Baron and Luthien's arc involve them doing things that have never been done before. Um no you know good guy had ever snuck into uh Angband before and you know successfully put Morgoth and all his retinue to sleep. Um, and so the idea that they might get out of there alive, like, it was a suicide journey from the get-go, and the fact they succeeded was shocking beyond all belief. Uh, and then when Luthien goes to the halls of Mandos, uh, to bring back Baron's soul, no human had ever come back from the dead. Ever. That's not what humans do. Um, so the fact that she succeeded there was also beyond belief. Um, and so I think when the stakes are that high, even, even... Though, according to, like, the the map, the hero might be expected to succeed, they're also doing the impossible. And I don't think that cheapens it. Yeah, I think you have to weigh um, audience expectation against character expectation, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and that's what I'm, I'm more referring to as an audience member. Like... I'm going to take a little side path here, but School of Rock is an example, sort of like of what I'm thinking about, where you expect them to win. You expect them to rock the concert at the end after they've been preparing for months and everything ends up okay, and it doesn't. And I think that's what I really like about that movie, is the fact that it doesn't end up okay, and it kind of like trashed my expectations going into the movie um i i think that this comes down for me like when i talk about um oh how do i want to say this it's the effectiveness of the storytelling like i can watch i can watch a movie and know that at the end that the hero is going to be alive and well but if the story is told effectively then that's fine okay i i love both subverting tropes and also not subverting tropes um so i i guess i don't have a sense that following this cheapens it because i like it when when it's done well i like it when they follow it and when it's done well i like it when it's subverted um and i've seen enough of both that you know usually you know what you're getting into but not always well, and I absolutely believe that narratives exist where using that expectation cheapens the storytelling, but I think that that's more of a function of bad storytelling than it is of this structure. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. Uh, Martha, do we want to get into that third question? Um, I, I honestly think we've kind of covered it already. Um, it's sort of, I, I think it's kind of bled into the, the rest of our discussion. <laughs> sort of weaving throughout <laughs> the whole thing. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the, the big question is, you know, why do we still talk about this? Um, you know, why is this still uh, a roadmap that we consider relevant? And I think it's because it's never going to go away as long as we continue to tell uh, stories about adventures or stories about character growth. We're always going to be we're always going to have Joseph Campbell kind of in the background <laughs> just lurking so yeah i'm i'm happy to call that one addressed asked and answered cool all right thank you for joining us on this episode of did you do your homework <clears throat> martha do you want to tell us what next week's episode is going to be all about I would love to tell you all what next week's episode is going to be about. Next, well, in two weeks on our next episode, we will be talking about fandom and media's representation of fandom communities. Uh, My homework that I am assigning is the novel Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell, which is one of my favorites, and I hope that you guys enjoy it as well. It's so good. (laughs) I have picked the 2009 movie Fanboys, which will be a very, like, maybe fun counterpart to Fangirls, or Fangirl. I like the fact that the titles, at least, are a nice little counterpart to each other. Uh, For myself, I chose the 1999 film Galaxy Quest. Uh, Have fun with that. And now, now I think we should probably tell our listeners where we can, where they can find us on the web. You can find me pretty much anywhere at Magical Martha. Uh, I also run the show's uh, Twitter, which is at DYDYH Podcast. Um, there's not a whole lot of activity going on there, but I do occasionally have. I do occasionally remember that I can use that Twitter account when I'm when I'm having feelings about stuff that's relevant to the show. So be sure to check us out there. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at or at Twitter. Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Tricky Lemon, where I post lots of photos of my cats and knitting. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-A-I-P-I-K-O-3000. Um, talk about politics and pop culture. You can find the show at uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere fine podcasts are available. Check out our website, homeworkpodcast.com. You can also email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com or send us a message on Facebook. Uh, If you email us, uh, Facebook us, Twitter us, feel free to send ideas for shows, idea for homework assignments or extra credit, um, or just give your feedback. Uh, We'll read any feedback or reviews on the air. Speaking of, please do rate and review us on iTunes. That's how uh, other people are able to find us. I think we have enough ratings now that we pop up in the iTunes store uh, more easily. So keep doing that. Uh, It supports us, helps other people find out about the podcast. Uh, Tell your friends. Uh, That's what a real hero would do, would be to tell (laughs) his or her friends about the podcast. Just tell everybody. They don't have to be your friends. Oh, yeah. Good good point. (laughs) Uh, and I always forget to say this, but I do always want to thank Pete for um, doing all of the editing and mixing and producing of our episodes. Uh, they could not, they would not be available to you guys in as timely of a manner without him. So thank you, Pete. Thank you. Doing the real hero's work over here.
You are. No, for sure. <laughs> I'm just trying to maximize the use of hero puns. All right. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Class dismissed. <laughs>